0: This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios.
1: Hello and welcome to Talking TV, I'm Jake Cantor. This episode we've got a channel launch bonanza for you as A&E Networks puts Lifetime Live and local TV braces for blast-off. Also on the show, statistics as you've never seen them before. We find out how BBC Two gets number crunching with innovative documentary Don't Panic, The Truth About Population. And stick with us for an obscurely named comedy preview special as Krakenori and Yonderland get a once over. That's all coming up. Joining me at Maple Street Studios are broadcast editor Lisa Campbell and Stephen D. Wright, the creative director of WizKid Entertainment. Stephen, how was
2: your, your fortnight in telly? Oh, joy. <laughs> A joy as always. Every day <laughs> I wake up and I think I love my job. And Lisa, you've been uh, you've been busy at the
1: Channel 4 Upfronts this week. How yeah, was that, that? Was,
3: that was on last night. That was uh, very entertaining, uh, very busy, lots of advertisers and media buyers. They clearly know their audience well. They had a bevy of burlesque dancers to entertain them and uh, Alan Carr doing his best Miley Cyrus twerking impression, which was very amusing. Um, they interviewed some of the stars from their upcoming shows, um, including Greg Davis, who announced, as well as a Christmas special of Man Down, that that's been recommissioned for a second series. Is. You know which is quite interesting because it is below the slot average but I think it shows that Channel 4 is recognizing that ratings shouldn't be everything and particularly with comedy you need to give it time to evolve. So I think that's a good sign and uh hopefully they'll do the same with Taste of London which is in a very odd late night slot and yeah. uh, seems to have but had no publicity. About it. Yeah, so um so I hope you know again it seems to be one of those distinctive this, channel defining
1: Is this a bit of a trend with Channel 4 because Gogglebox didn't rate when it first came on air? Educating Essex was a bit up and down. Mm. Um, but then these two shows have come back and they're doing well. they've done brilliantly, haven't yeah, they? Yeah,
3: yeah. I, th- I think so. It's, uh, and I, you just hope that Channel 4 stick with them, that they've got the the confidence to sort of take the risk. I mean, in fact, Jay Hunt was asked yesterday what her biggest disappointment was. And she said not recognising what an enormous hit Gogglebox was going to be. <laughs> um, well, we heard from Nigella Lawson. Um, her new series is The Taste, the Taste yeah, yeah, which is the ABC format which is a cooking competition with blind taste tests. So it's essentially Bake Off meets The Voice, except they're sort of crying at the end about soggy pasta rather than soggy bottoms. Um, <laughs> and and um,
1: more Educating Yorkshire, which is good news for everyone. I
3: yeah, think. Educating Yorkshire Christmas special. Get Best the thing tissues I'm ready. What, what did you like Educating Yorkshire, Stephen? Uh Yes.
2: I mean, you know, I watched the first one, loved it, didn't watch the next five and then got told to watch the one <laughs> with mushy in it. And of course, watched that and got a little bit teary. But I mean, I don't know if I could keep watching. It. That's the problem. And you know, to me, it's a great little documentary series, but I think they're stretching it a yeah. little bit.
1: Uh, should, we, should we move on? Uh, next up, it started as former Culture Secretary Jeremy Hunt's contribution to the long-forgotten Big Society. But local television will become a reality on the 26th of November as S3 TV goes live in Grimsby on Freeview Channel 8. But launch or no, industry scepticism remains, with some questioning if a new generation of local broadcasters can survive when viewers and advertisers already have so much choice. And joining us is Nigel Dacre, the former ITV News at 10 editor, now chair of the local TV network. Nigel, you work on behalf of licence holders. How do you respond to sceptics?
4: Yeah, well, listen, you, you read a lot. I've heard a lot. Um, a lot of people have said lots of different things about it. All I can talk about is actually what's happening. As you said, Grimsby is actually launching in two weeks' time. Up and down the country, from Scotland down to the south of the country, there's an incredible amount of work and energy and enthusiasm going into the rollout and the launch of these channels. So, of course, there are challenges facing this sector, and this um, uh, launching uh, TV channels like the local TV sector is not going to be, uh, you know, a completely straightforward proposition. But it is happening.
1: Yeah. And do you um, encounter surprise when you say to people, "Yeah, it's actually happening"? By the <laughs> well way. Well, it is. Well,
4: I mean, I've I've been involved in local TV for you know for years, and like. You have gone to lots of conferences about it, and panel discussions, and we we slightly got into a phase about two years ago. Where I just thought we were just going to carry on talking about it forever. <laughs> um, and Nothing was going and to then, happen. And well, exactly, and, the, and because if you remember, there was the IFNC um, project like, yeah. uh, under the last government. I do you remember? So we've kind of gone through this, and so after all the talking, it is actually happening, and. Uh, it's really, you know, quite frankly, it's really exciting to see it. So, you know, you can go down the road here and go into the London Live offices, and they're busy building the studios. I was in Nottingham yesterday. I'm very involved. One of the channels that I'm director of is Knots TV. We spent the day putting together our first uh, half-hour news program. Hey, we've got a lot of work to do, but it was really a good program by the end of the day, and certainly one that could be transmitted. So, local TV is happening. From where you're sitting now, will it work? well local tv will work yes yeah. undoubtedly in my view the the two bits of evidence which is which is starting to develop is that i just think it's undeniable that people want to watch videos and uh, and tv content Cross-platforms, not just on Freeview, cross-platforms, about their areas. I, can't, I just think it would be really difficult to argue that if you live in Brighton or Leeds or Birmingham, you don't want to see video content about what's happening in your town or your city. The second key thing that's happening is that um, there is now real evidence that lots of businesses who could never have afforded to advertise on a big ITV region and have never really advertised on TV are actually starting to engage with the local TV channels about doing adverts on local TV, which is far more affordable. What are the challenges in creating a sustainable business model around local television? I think the big issue facing us and I don't think there's any secret here, is we're going to have to produce programming on budgets far lower than the traditional channels. Yeah. So there's no point. And you can't generalise completely because London has a lot of funds, they're putting a lot of money into it, and some of their, uh, the tariffs that they're paying for programmes are quite traditional tariffs. But for the majority of channels, it is only going to work if they can produce programming at much lower uh, cost levels. Yeah. And, you know, and uh, yes, that's a challenge. But it makes, you know, if you've got a smaller budget and you've got to make the program, you've got to think of ways of doing it. You don't pay your presenter ridiculous amounts of money. You don't come up with a totally unnecessary um, expensive set or very expensive graphics. But do you do focus on producing Good quality, watchable programming. And
1: I know you feel strongly about this,
4: Nigel, but do you think that local television can become a training ground for the industry? Yeah, yeah. undeniably. As, as you go around the country, as I'm sure we all do, there are an extraordinary number of really good, high-quality TV and journalist colleges putting out quite you know well-trained, very well-talented kids. I think a good majority of them not able to enter the industry currently. There just aren't those opportunities to get in. And I think local TV is going to provide a great stepping stone for a large number of people. And I think what's quite interesting about local TV, partly because of the budgets, it's going to have to be innovative, you know, yeah. you, 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 and it's going to have to be very multi-skilled. So you can be quite a young person coming into the local TV sector, and quite quickly you'll be doing a whole range of work. And I suspect it's quite similar when local radio started actually people were coming in and suddenly producing programs going out and doing interviews writing the scripts themselves then starting to present themselves and whereas if you're a you know if you're a young researcher going into the independent sector now maybe some time before you do anything at a reasonably responsible level so people will be able to go in and experiment try things out at the end of the day though at the end of the day and this is crucial to these programs have got to look professional and they've got to be watchable and they've got to be interesting and they've got to be good quality so yes it's It's got to be a good training ground. But at the same time, as a sector, we've got to make sure that we've got the quality controls in the system so that we are producing the right quality of programming.
1: Good luck with it all, Nigel. Thank you, Thank very you for much. joining us Not today. All. Thank you. So, from local to national, and the launch this week of Lifetime, the female skewing station from US broadcaster AE Networks. Here's Heather Jones, Vice President of Programming at a Networks UK, speaking to broadcast Peter White at Lifetime's launch bash last month.
0: What I've tried to do with it is to keep it as close to um, the Lifetime US proposition initially, so. Focusing on kind of big, expensive scripted dramas with the client list in which to east stand, with the TV movies, which you know nowadays are led by lots of the kind of Hollywood A-listers, both in front of and behind the camera. And then the reality shows like Dance Moms and Preacher's Daughters. So we're we're basically taking the best of the Lifetime channels with a few other acquisitions sprinkled around it and then some UK commissions to come the other side of Christmas.
2: Great. And um, also Amanda Cadena, you've persuaded her to come back to the UK and and do a version of her show that was set up in the States, right?
0: That's right, yeah. So um, it's actually the very first show that will go out on Lifetime. For the UK special, she's interviewing Katie Moran and Rosie Huntington-Whiteley and... So, Aura. Right. And then there's a special episode that will come down the line where Gwyneth Paltrow, who's very good friends with Amanda, actually interviews Amanda and turns the tables. Heather, thank you very much. Thank
1: you. That was Heather Jones. Uh, before we get started, let's have a look at a few figures. For Lifetime's launch on the 4th of November uh, racy Jennifer Love Hewitt drama The Client List drew its biggest audience of the day peaking with a mere 84,000 viewers this compares to the 200,000 viewers that uh, Discovery's uh, rival TLC achieved on its first day in April however TLC's audience has settled down and its biggest show on the 4th of November was a Gypsy Brides USA which tied the knot with 41,000 viewers meaning it was actually beaten by Lifetime so this is an increasingly crowded market space.
3: It is. I mean, this really ramps up the competition in, yeah. the, in the female-skewing pay TV space. Um, I mean, you, you had April's debut of um, Discovery's TLC, as you say, and then Sky's increasing investment in Sky Living. I, I think Heather's point, you know, that you know it's trying to be a sort of upmarket end of things with the Hollywood talent in front of the scene and behind the camera. And, you know, some of these big drama one-offs oh great, you know, I think you've got Angela Bassett and Mary J Blige in Betty and Coretta and you've got uh, Steel Magnolia's remake, Courtney Cox is directing something you know, they'll attract people, you know, on the back of those big names and, and they're sort of quite channel defining and they, you know, they look big budget and everything, so, you know, so that's that's quite interesting and, and, you know, we'll see how the original commissions fit alongside that
1: Yeah, has it had enough marketing? I mean TLC went big, there was billboards all over London from what mm-hmm. I can remember I don't feel it's had the same impact with Lifetime
3: I haven't seen as much marketing as I you know TLC, you absolutely couldn't miss it, could you? Um, right. I mean, they had a big launch party, as as you heard. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe there could be a bit more of a push, but maybe they'll do that on the you know for the original programming. Yeah.
2: Stephen, will you be watching? I will. I love all that trashy nonsense, which is <laughs> which you know seems to be or high quality trash. That's mm-hmm. that's what it seems to be. Well, they've
3: it? got the high quality drama, but then they've yeah. got the trash like Dance Moms, haven't they? Which is yeah.
2: I mean, I've already <laughs> downloaded the uh, Witches of the East End or whatever. You know, yeah, like, yep, we- love all that. Yeah. So yeah, I'm definitely going to be watching. Yeah, have is you it... seen
3: Dance Moms?
2: I've heard about
3: it. Oh, that's just—I mean, again, once you watch that, it's—it's it's so horrific. It's <laughs> gripping, and the—the uh, the most spoilt brats and the biggest tantrums come from the mothers, not—not not the kids. So it's uh, unbelievable. Yeah,
1: its <laughs> first UK commission is
2: Alaska's The Proposers.
3: Can we expect more original commissions? Yeah, I mean, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
2: you know, otherwise, what? It's just a US acquisitions. If it, if they don't start making it feel like a real UK channel. I mean that's the thing that TLC when they launched it was a lot of, you know, everything else and you you wait for it to become a kind of our channel. Do you know what I mean? We as UK viewers. Does so, it need to do that to resonate? I think it has to do a bit. But that's the thing, you know, that this is the the big challenge for all these channels. I mean living has, you know, elementary and hmm. whatever and but it has to have equivalent quality from the UK and they don't always have the budget for that
3: no and the, if you look at Sky Living's numbers they're getting a lot more viewers for the American acquisitions mm. than they are for the original programming mm. so you know maybe they just accept that and think well you need that mix and they're never going to deliver the, the volume but it's it's more channel defining that way isn't it
1: mm. that's the news for this episode my thanks to Lisa Stephen and Nigel Daker. Next up, it's an age-old telly conundrum. How do you make statistics engaging? Well, BBC Two thinks it's got the answer and it's not Jeremy Vine lassoing his way through green screen graphics. The channel's documentary Don't Panic, The Truth About Population sees Swedish professor Hans Rosling present findings on global population trends using 3D holographic projections. Filmed in front of a live audience, it's the same technology that ITV used to revive comedian Les Dawson for an audience with that never was. Joining me in a minute will be Archie Barron and Dan Hillman, who produced a documentary for Wingspan Productions. But first, here's Rosling doing his thing.
2: Seven billion people now live on this planet of ours. Isn't it beautiful? But when some people think about the world and its future, they panic. Others prefer not to think about it at all. But tonight, I'm going to show you how things really are. My name is Hans Rosling. I'm a statistician at, no, 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 don't switch off, because with the latest data from all country, I'm going to show you the world in a new way. I'm going to tell you how world population is changing and what today's data tell us about how the future of the world will be.
1: Thanks for joining us, Archie. Um, you, you've described this as uh, Wingspan's most ambitious and important film ever. Why, why is that? Well, it's not a small subject,
5: is it? I mean, where the world's come from, where it is and where it's going in the next hundred years. It's nine o'clock on BBC Two, and it's not the easiest subject to deliver to that channel at that time slot. And one has to use all the tricks of the trade in a programme about statistics. And to do that, one has to use extremely innovative technology that hasn't been used before. So that's
1: ambitious. It's important because of the storyline. It's also rather risky. So what came first, the idea to do the documentary or the technology itself?
5: No, the idea came first in that we had made a film with Hans before called The Joy of Stats, which did very well on BBC Four and had involved some pretty pioneering and exciting infographics because that's what he's known for, telling stories and visualising them in terms of amassing a vast array of statistics and marshalling them to tell short, funny, interesting, rather important stories. And we thought, well, how are we going to raise the bar and do it differently this
6: time
1: because we wanted to move on because that's in his nature. Dan, can you tell us about the technology and how it worked when you were filming?
6: Yes, it's a a technology based on an old Victorian musical trick called Pepper's Ghost, which uh, involves a screen that's angled at 45 degrees towards the audience with a projector hidden underneath the uh, stage below it. So the projection bounces off the screen towards the audience and the audience Appear to see that projection behind the screen where the presenter's standing. In its modern manifestation, it it involves a as a four metre high, eight metre long piece of um, I think it's Mylar. It's a proprietary uh, uh, fabric uh, in in any event that is stretched to an extraordinary tension that takes the Amusement Team four hours to uh, to rig. And the effect is quite amazing. Yeah. You know, you don't see the screen at all. You don't see this truss at all. All you see is whatever it is that you're projecting. In this case, these beautiful graphics hanging in midair. It's brilliantly designed. And
1: I have to say, it, it is very striking and effective on screen. What What are the challenges filming that,
6: though? Probably finding a way for the presenter, for, for Hans Rosling, to actually interact with yeah. with those graphics. Because... One of the effects of the technology is that he can't see exactly what the audience can see. He, he can see a sort of reference image that's projected on his side of the screen. And that's quite difficult for him to get, to get used to. The, the ideal is for him to be able to point to something that he can't see that the audience can see mm. and to get that pointing precisely right. And that's probably the biggest challenge of all. He, he, he pulls that off extremely well.
5: Yeah, he programme. does pull it off. Yeah. I'd um, just like to add, though, that however difficult that is, it's easier than the alternatives involving, you know, reference monitors um, involving CGI. But when we did The Joy of Stats, we had sort of gaffer tape stuck around. So it's well easier than room. a green screen. So it's e- I think it's easier than a green screen. Yeah. I think it's easier than the complicated uh, methods that one might yeah. use if one was post producing it. And above all, of course, the audience can
1: see it. Yeah. live. So. Uh, there, there seems to be a bit of a fascination with this at the moment, with, with the ITV show, and I think they they used it to bring back Tupac at uh, Coachella, is that right? It's, it's Musion, that's the company. Yeah, Musion, Musion, the company. Uh, do, uh, is... do, you, do you think this is a, a, a trend, uh, or, or is it a bit of a gimmick? I certainly don't think it's a gimmick, because
5: I don't think we're nearly at the stage where people are using it thoughtlessly. I think they're mm. using it for specific intentions. I do think that uh, it is excellent for live events and has been overlooked by television. And I think entertainment have used it a certain amount. We're the first people to use it in Factual, which is partly, I think, because the ambition, the resources, the time frame to put together this kind of show for a Factual, it's kind of, you know, you can see why shiny floor shows have used it a little bit first and why it's taken a while to get into Factual, but as a way of telling stories that are very problematic and you know have been problematic for years no one's cracked how to do data on tv you know on election night it's really complicated I i wouldn't be surprised if come the next election some broadcasters
1: are using musion well you heard it here first and hans himself he's fantastically engaging and very funny as well surprisingly funny why is it taking you so long to get him back on UK
6: television screens? What, what, what's the story there? Well, probably more than anything else, because he's incredibly busy. <laughs> he In any given week, he will be lecturing on three continents. He clocks up an astonishing number of air miles. He's very much in demand by you know, everything from international institutions to big companies to, to universities all over the world. So just finding the time for him to commit what he does need to commit and and did commit which is a, a, a lot of time to put this together was, was difficult it's, it's also it's the international Swede of the year we all have you know <laughs> <laughs> it's a fact it, it is a fact He's <laughs> the international Swede of the year <laughs> it's also as Archie mentioned uh, it's 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 a risk it was a risk for the BB, for the bbc which uh, you know we're very glad and i think uh, they're very glad they they took um, to put a data show a statistics show yeah. on primetime television on bbc2
5: and the other thing is at wingspan that we 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 try not to do something just because it's possible we're trying to think well what can we do next and how can it be bigger and better and it actually took us a little while to work out what the right way to move with hands forward was because we'd had a real success with Joy of Stats, we'd won a Grierson with it and it was a film we were very proud of and we weren't sure how to do we knew that what the story should yeah. be about we knew it should be about where the world is and where it's going but we didn't actually work out how to do it so we bided our time to some degree.
1: Yeah and for listeners who don't know you also produced bbc Two's popular Ian Hislop series. Uh, Can you tell us about what's coming next? Up to a point. I can tell you what
5: Janice announced uh, (laughs) um, uh, at Edinburgh, um, which was Ian Hislop's Olden Days, the power of the past in Britain. So it's another cultural history. We did stiff up a lip last time around. And it's another one of those things that Ian does so well, which are not histories of people or events, but histories of ideas. And in this case, it's the history of why and how the British, perhaps more than any other nation, are obsessed with the past and the degree to which the past frames the present through history. So it guides us and, uh, to some degree, um, is not just for fogies but for progressives in that the past is always the framework with which people reference and move forward.
0: Yeah,
1: how do you work with Ian? Does he come up with the ideas and then you you look to, to explore it or is it a more of a collaborative effort?
5: over the years I've had so many conversations with with Ian and he's got such a fertile mind and such a range of interests that we kind of um, just sort of think well we might do that one day and then we just do a little bit of work and talk and it it just sort of happens organically Um, but we are with Janice pleased that she's quite keen for us to plough once again not the most straightforward pastures because doing cultural histories about ideas these kind of essays that are trying to take an anatomy of who we are as Britons and they're not straightforward so uh, Ian's very good at that and perhaps only someone like Ian can, can can do that and bring a couple of million people towards
1: it yeah Archie and Dan thank you very much for joining us today Don't Panic The Truth About Population Ed on BBC2 on the 7th of November and is available on iPlayer so cometh the hour cometh the previews yes Lisa and Stephen are back with me to run the rule over a couple of shows soon to hit your telly box we start with Sky One's family-friendly fantasy comedy, Yonderland, which is brought to you by the team that made CBBC hit Horrible Histories. Stay at home mum, Debbie, leads us into Yonderland, a bizarre parallel universe with madcap puppets, false prophets and bumbling elders. Here's Debbie meeting the elders in the first episode.
6: We await your teachings, Debbie.
3: What do you want me to say? Why you are here. You brought me here, you tell me.
0: Um... So you're saying you dragged me through a
3: portal into another world to tell me that I'm the chosen one, but you've no idea what I've actually been chosen to do? Yeah, Well, that is written on the second scroll. And where's the second scroll? Um...
5: Oh, how many times
3: I was drunk!
1: <laughs> Lisa, you went to see this with the family. Did okay. it strike a chord?
3: It did, actually. There were lots of laugh out loud moments for the adults and, and the kids really enjoyed it as well and um, and definitely wanted to see more. So I, I think it's a real challenge, isn't it, doing a family sitcom that appeals to everybody. Mm. Um, I do think they've, they've managed to pull it off. I mean, sometimes it was a bit more risque than, than I thought it would be. And there's one point where, you know, calls of a slapper or something. And then there's another bit where. The woman's husband gets eaten by a monster, and then she runs off to find Jenny and yeah. uh, the little girl behind. Said, "Who's Jenny? Why is she going to find Jenny?" And I was really interested to see how her mum would explain that one. So.
2: <laughs> Stephen, did you like it? I did. I, mean, I was slightly dreading watching it because it'd been so hyped, yeah, and it's been running for weeks. You know, the, the, I mean, they're Sky really, really, really pushing with it with it, yeah. And I was a bit like, "Oh no, it's going to be you know awful." And I really liked it. I really liked it, and and it felt it felt so much more clever than i was expecting um and genuinely funny which is an important but but it was it, i mean bits of it were like a bit like monty python yeah you know and, and sort of banal sitcom and a little bit puppety whatever the the mix has really worked and mm. and it did feel really original you know yeah. and i watched it as a kind of childless uh bitter loner adult you know <laughs> and had no kind of thought about what whether the kids like it i liked it as as a grown up probably. yeah monty python esque yeah it genuinely i mean you know the, yeah. the, the bits of it with that kind of absurdity slash the Liseic little cutaways image, and just, yeah i don't know the whole thing worked and and the gags were so much cleverer than i was expecting yeah. yeah, and it, it's
3: sort of you know labyrinth, dark crystals, terror hawks. They're it's boring kind of got a er- lot, aren't Yeah, they, they are. Rippling, but yeah, lots of different things. yeah. but I, I mean, I think it's it's eccentric and it's wonderfully inventive, and I think presented enormous challenges for for well, the go, production team. Well, I mean, and- that's
2: the thing. The confidence or the ambition mm. takes you wherever. So that's the thing. You start off, and I wasn't expecting the modern day si- setting. I was expecting the kind of you know the faux fantasy. Yeah. And so even that threw me a little bit and the fact that we went back into that and came, you know, they really take you wherever you you want. Mm. I, I
1: enjoyed uh, the fact that it was largely CGI-free and the, I thought the puppets actually brought a lot of warmth as a result of that.
3: Sounds like a, an amazing can-do attitude on yeah. set where I think uh, the lead actress described it as a, you know, someone had a brain fart and then they turned it into something, <laughs> you know. I, I love that that sort of giant blue jelly egg thing where the you know, two heads pop out it's not explained you know, at all yeah.
1: <laughs> it's just fantastic do you not think it strayed into self-indulgence at times a little bit I thought there were moments where it was I don't know a, perhaps a little OTT
2: no. I don't know I mean it's it's it, you've got to enter the world of yeah. Yonderland and, and that's the thing it, it is a genuine world it, it's, it's, it, it holds you yeah. and therefore once you're in it you'll you'll accept anything and I think that's the, the mark of a, of a good show you know yeah. that you know, that kind of slightly Monty Python meets Muppets, it, just, it mm. took me work completely. You know, yeah. I think it was
3: less self-indulgent, indul- more, um, you know, this incredible attention to detail mm. shows the sort of passion behind it, yeah. really.
2: Uh,
1: well, let's hope it's, it cuts through for Sky then. Sky 1's Yonderland is produced by Working Title Films and begins on Sunday, the 10th of November at 6.30pm. Next up is Krakenori. Dave's adult take on the well-loved children's programme *Jack and Ori*. An assortment of stars have been lined up to tell weird and wonderful tales, which will be acted out in live-action scenes crafted by producer Tiger Aspect Productions. Expect contributions from Harry Enfield, Richard Hammond and Rebecca Front throughout the series, but the storytelling gets started with Sally Phillips in the first of six episodes.
0: But as the hubbub
3: of the funeral calmed down, a vital truth became clear to the family. Emily... Teddy and Beatrice would never recover from the loss of their beloved PB. They knew that the happy part of their lives was gone, never to return. They would never be able to move on, never, never. The thought of not seeing him again was too much for them to bear. But they did see him again, the following Thursday when he arrived at the house. There he suddenly was, standing his full 5 feet 11 inches tall, with one hand in his pocket, one hand holding a crystal tumbler, and an expression of glass-eyed benevolence on his lacquered face. You see, PB had been stuffed by a taxidermist named Josiah Strawman, who had done an excellent job.
1: Stephen, do you want to start us off on this one?
2: Yeah, I absolutely loved it. Did you? not get over how compelling it was from the minute it started. People always talk about, oh yeah, the secret of a good show is a good story. Mm. That's it. It was so compelling yeah. and really original. The, the kind of slightly kind of dark, slightly creepy but not completely tone was 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 really really uh, fresh. And I couldn't predict what was coming. It literally had had me on the edge of my seat. At one point when I was watching the preview tape, it slightly uh, froze, and I was all... Because <gasps> I was literally gripped by it. I was desperate to know what happened next. Which <laughs> story was this? Was this uh, So of in the first stories, episode, was, Jack D and, and uh, Sally Phillips. The, the, the Sally Phillips story was the one where it actually froze on the screen for yeah. a second. And I was like, oh, you know, and I was like, oh, no. But, you know, with PB and all the rest of it. But um, <laughs> Yeah, PB. The two stories were uh, incredible, uh, absolutely brilliant. When I saw the I saw the Harry Enfield version, obviously the first half, And thought, well, that was brilliant. No way the second one is going to be as good. And it was just as good, but completely different. And I was absolutely knocked out by it. I thought it was amazing.
6: Wow.
2: <laughs> Follow that, Lisa. <laughs> yeah, no,
3: I, to be honest, I loved it as well. I think it's it feels really distinctive. I mean, you know, we're talking about living and how it's difficult to have an original commission that stands up against a big American show. Well, this just feels like nothing you've really seen on, on TV anywhere else. And it's so simple and, you know, beautiful mix of, of live action, of uh, animation, mm. great storytelling from, from brilliant actors and, and comedians. As you say, you know, grip from the beginning. I love the opening of the Jack D. story with you know they say sarcasm is the lowest form of wit. Then along comes Twitter, and the, you know it's just a, it's a great storyline, and it feels unbounded by any sort of constraints. You know this sort of surreality means it it, it doesn't it doesn't have a structure. It sort of it goes anywhere. It, go, it becomes more and more ridiculous, and because you know it unbelievable is exactly well. yeah. That so was it's, what was so
2: amazing? It was like mm. what, at one point, especially with the Jack D. story. It felt like a bit like a sort of Charlie Brooker. Yeah. York yeah. Yeah. No,
0: I
1: thought I'd seen but it before. It, I felt like it, I, it was familiar, that sort of vision of a dystopian
2: society overrun by technology. <laughs> you, need, I, yeah. you need to re-embrace that child within. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember Jack and and that was the thing. It's like someone telling you a story is the greatest trick in show business, you know? Mm-hmm. A good story well told. That's it. That's all you need. Yeah. And Lisa's right. It was it from the minute it starts, boom, it works and it feels just as expensive it didn't look cheap that's a a remarkable thing it Mm. didn't look cheap it didn't look thrown together it was it was really polished like a little jewel Uh, how difficult is it to keep things simple in that way Stephen god it's the hardest thing in the world I mean it sounds like it should be obvious but everybody wants to complicate things and overcomplicate things and and the other thing we're not we've not said about this it's funny as well It's, Mm. it's like a comedy you know it's not uh, uh just a sort of a story you know beginning middle and end it's actually like watching a sitcom yeah. or something you know yeah. it's got a very very strong comedic sense so it's remarkable that they managed to keep it simple that they kept on the actors faces that they didn't over it that, that you know it's it's it, i mean that's that shows a lot of skill
3: yeah it um, sort of piles and... on this sort of incredulity after incredulity that you end up you know it becomes hilarious but it's still still very dark it's quite you know tonally it's really interesting
1: fantastic thanks guys uh, krakenori comes to dave on the 13th of november at 10 p.m i'm afraid that's all we've got for you this episode my gratitude to lisa and stephen as well as archie baron dan hillman and right at the top of the program nigel Daker. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, don't keep quiet about it. Tell your friends, family, pets, we're we're not that fussy, really. Uh, My name's Jake Cantor. The producer was Matt Hill. Until next time, goodbye.
0: You've been listening to Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios.